Right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you for being here, man. Absolutely, Jeremiah. I'm so happy to be here, man. So for the listeners who might not know, can you just give us a quick background on who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so I spent the last 13 years working in the fitness industry in some capacity. So that could have been personal training, or I've done sales and research and formulation in the supplement industry. And then for the past eight years, I've spent uh, online coaching. So I initially got into training in my early teens as a way to rehabilitate a bunch of injuries I had, which actually came from uh, being in a state of relative energy deficiency. You know, this was actually from having developed an eating disorder um, because at that time, you know, when I was young, I did uh, weight restricted, like weight class restricted sports, like martial arts, like um, distance running. And these are both sports that I had coaches around me that constantly reminded me and made me conscious and aware of my weight. So this was like a, something that developed in me that developed an eating disorder. So eventually this led to a state where I was not only deficient in like calories and energy, but also deficient in several micronutrients like vitamin D iron, B vitamins, magnesium, iodine, potassium, even sodium, like key electrolytes and stuff. So initially I went to physical therapy and there it was a dual clinic. There was a physical therapist and a chiropractor and one was a power lifter and one was a bodybuilder. So I got in the perfect environment and they really kind of transformed my mindset around nutrition and training because they showed me that nutrition plays a key role in training performance, recovery, and body composition. And I also needed to train to rehabilitate all the injuries I had sustained. So at that point, like once I got introduced into these topics, I was not only hooked physically, but I was hooked like intellectually. At the time, I was very into academics and stuff. I was pretty much a nerd, to be honest with you. So I applied that same fervor and that passion for scholastics to fitness and learned as much as I could. So it's, it's funny, you know, when I first got into the coaching space, this is 2013, you know, so this space was incredibly different, man. It's so different than it is today. And there was way less coaches in the space, way less credible, you know, resources online providing information and social media had yet to play a large role in coaching in general. So when I first got started, you only did online coaching if you had been a successful personal trainer or had a ton of experience. So at that time I had training for years. I was also a professional fitness model. You know, I had competed before, so I had all this experience and that was really the only people that were doing this at the time. It was a very small group of people. And obviously it wasn't as popular either. So there wasn't a demand for clientele nor for coaching, but over the years, you know, we're going to talk about my health centric model of coaching. It kind of developed because as the years have went on, especially, you know, in the mid 2010, say 2015 to 2018, I started noticing that the field was getting very oversaturated, essentially. It was becoming filled with people that, um, you know, getting watered down by people who got into coaching, not because they had the passion, the knowledge, the experience or the skills, but because they thought it was like an easy career where you could like sit back in, on the beach and drink my ties and, and make some money. You know what I mean? In this easy capacity. Um, and I think that's why the, the industry has went in the direction it has, both in a good way and a bad way. So it's it's caused a lot of people get into the space that they, they're not right for it and they give it a bad reputation. But then it's caused others like you and myself to really try to bring the standard of coaching up and raise it and really raise our expectations of ourselves as a coach, as well as an athlete and, and someone that participates in fitness ourselves. But also, we really kind of set the standards to stand apart and really elevate this industry as a whole. I love it, man. So then with your own coaching process and kind of this health centric model that you have, what would you say is like the mission or the goal behind all of that? Okay. So first and foremost, my primary mission is to help my clients achieve their goals of improving their physiques, whether that be through building muscle or burning body fat. 
in a healthy yet sustainable manner where they not only get the results they desire, but they're also able to maintain those results over the long term. So what, what I really try to you know, reiterate to people is it's not just about getting to the end goal. This isn't, you know, fitness is not, you know, a sprint. It's a marathon. I know that's so cliche to say, but there's so many people that have been able to get shredded once or be able to put on some muscle, but very few that have maintained it over a long period of time. And that's why we have such a high recidivism rate in terms of dieting and why they say, you know, statistically 95% of diets fail. Technically they don't. If the, the actual weight loss statistics show that six out of seven people will lose weight, a substantial amount of weight throughout their lifetime, 95% will gain it back though on average. So, you know, over the last 13 years that I've spent within the fitness industry, I started to, you know, I experienced and noticed many things that just didn't sit right with me, which impacted and shaped my coaching approach. So I myself have gotten on stage uh, over 14 times. I've done over 100 professional photo shoots. And I've spent much of my life and career trying to push the limits of my physique and, and performance. But with that, I realized that much of what's promoted in fitness centers too far in the extremes. It's either in one direction or the other. So for instance, when it comes to building muscle, we're taught to push an excessive amount of food and training volume, you know, to build tissue. But very rarely, especially when I was first starting out, did people talk about, you know, any of the drawbacks that come along with this, such as insulin resistance, which we'll cover later, or metabolic syndrome, or high blood pressure, or any of these health effects that come along with pushing your body to the extreme. You know, they weren't even talking about stress a couple years ago. And that's like such a prominent thing. No one spoke about digestion, the gut microbiome, none of this stuff until the last couple of years. So imagine 2013, these are like uncharted territories. Right. And then on the other side of the physique continuum, like during fat loss or even contest prep phases, we're taught to push as hard as possible to drop as much body fat as possible. And everyone's just focused like narrow-mindedly on getting shredded at all costs. But very few people, especially at that time, ever talked about, ever spoke on the diet-induced metabolic adaptations, which include both physiological and psychological effects that come along with this process. So, you know, at that time I was, you know, that I got into competing, there wasn't even much talk about like post-contest, you know, periods such as reverse dieting. Like this was just, Lean was just starting to talk about this. The guys at 3ADMJ hadn't even done the recovery diet yet. So we're talking early days, but there were so so much lack of, of information, which really caused me to like dive deep. I have a research background from the supplementation supplement industry. So I was diving deep onto research papers and we had the research there. There's research dating back to the early 90s on metabolic adaptation and, and how to you know avoid fat gain or fat regain. But no one was really looking at that and saying, listen, you can't take everything in the research and apply it to, to human physiology, but you can take certain things like we were speaking about before this podcast, you know, that you take what's useful and discard what's useless. And, you know, so we'd essentially see, especially early on, I noticed a lot of things like cycles of over-restricting during a diet and then binge eating post. So, you know, you would have someone that would have like a terrible rebound and then have body image issues. And then they would start the off season in a suboptimal state of both body composition and health. So the issue with, with our industry as a whole, I think, is that we've gotten to the point where it used to be the health and fitness industry. Like when I first got into this and I, I was going to expos, health and fitness expos, everything was centered around health and fitness, but we've eliminated fitness from that equation. It's only about, I mean, we've eliminated health rather from the equation. It's only about fitness. Everything's the fitness industry. It's, I work in the fitness industry. We've kind of like overlooked the health component and how important it is. So, you know, when, when I look at the space and I also speak about the topics because they have over the years trained a lot of competitors, you know, we all know a sport like bodybuilding isn't inherently healthy 
whether you pursue it as a natural or an enhanced athlete. But that doesn't mean we should just disregard our health in the process. As I always tell people, a healthy body is a responsive body. So this caused me to go down the road where I started utilizing what I had learned through health practices, through integrative medicine, through functional medicine, and applying it to physique enhancement, physique and body composition improvements to create the health-centric coaching model that we're going to speak on today because I want to help people improve you know, not only their physique, but I want them to be able to improve their health and mitigate the negative side effects that come along with pursuing fitness at any level, you know, while also making sure that they're getting to their body composition goals, you know, because it's not just one sided or, or the other. It shouldn't just be just health focused. It shouldn't just be performance focused. We need to blend both and try to get a happy medium. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And that's such good insights. I love how you said, like, it used to be the health and fitness industry, and we've completely eliminated the health portion of it. And I know even for me, like, when I got into this, it was like, I don't give a fuck about health. I just want to get jacked, right? <laughs> Which I think is- We've all been there. I'll tell you, over 10 years ago, I was in the same position, but I suffered the negative ramifications myself. So I realized, listen, there's no reason that someone else should make the same mistakes I did, especially when they're such- We're in an information age. Think about technology. Think about how education has improved. There's no reason as to why we should be making the same mistakes in 2021 that I made in 2010, but we still see them. Right. Yeah. But I mean, and I think even just the education piece of it is so huge, which I, I love what you're doing, man, because you're, you seem so passionate about not just the aesthetic side of it, but also like, hey, here's how health can actually be helpful. And I think the education there is so important because I know for me, when I could connect the dots and even like a lot more recently within the last few years, even like when I could connect the dots, okay, here's how health actually carries over to all these other things. Then it's improved aesthetics. Then it's so much easier to get buy-in from clients. Um, so as far as like how a healthy body is a more responsive one, is there anything else that you wanted to add there? Yeah. So I'm going to come to, I want to give a little background on how I even got to this concept. Like I always say that statement, all my clients know it. They repost it on stories and stuff. A healthy body is a responsive body, but really how this all started. And even I got into the health centric model was that what I noticed, you know, I started seeing people around five or six years ago coming to me that already had had experience with one or more coaches, because at that time around 2016, there was a lot more coaching. It was becoming more prominent. Social media was around. Like, like I said, initially, I didn't even have an Instagram when I started coaching. You know what I mean? I got clients from the gym that I used to work with. Yeah. You know what? It's funny. I um, I ran a chain of supplement shops in 2013 and I used to have online clients come in and check in with me in person. And then I would write up their programs on a computer and send it over. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, we, we had like iPhone twos or something like yeah. it wasn't we were like in the you know, it was like a different age at this point. But what I noticed was there was around that time, there were people that had experience with coaches, but they had poor experiences. So they had been coached and guided into trying extreme methods, you know, unsustainable methods that led them to feeling not only over restricted and exhausted, but also experiencing negative health outcomes from excessive fat post diet to psychological issues to internal health issues like high blood pressure and high blood lipids. So over the years, I've had more and more people come to me as a result of that, and especially because I promote health. And these people come to me with many of the same symptoms. So it's like I'm seeing the same things repeated over and over again. Honestly, they feel like shit both physically and mentally. They lack adequate energy throughout the day. They suffer from brain fog and don't have the cognitive abilities to do stuff at work, let alone when they get home. They have a poor relationship with food and and body image issues. Uh, They can't sleep well. They feel as though they can't recover as well and as they used to, which – This all compounds to make the problem worse. So what I've noticed is over time is most people are overfed. So we we know that we have an obesity epidemic. The average person gains one to two pounds per year. But most of these individuals are overfed yet undernourished. 
So they're not eating properly, you know what I mean? They're not fueling themselves. So this leads them to have a higher body fat percentage than they'd like, but they're suffering from several micronutrient deficiencies, which I can see both from like the diet log that they present me with, but also their blood work. So they, they, they're also like stressed out, they're inflamed, they're fatigued, they're living a lower quality of life in general than they should be. And that's why I take a health-centered approach to coaching that goes far beyond just the X's and O's of calories and macros for nutrition and the sets and reps for training because it's an all-encompassing thing. So my goal with everyone that I work with is to improve their health and their habits, positively modify their behaviors, and ultimately optimize their lifestyle as a whole. Because think about it logically. Jeremiah, how many hours per day do you spend in the gym? Probably about 90 minutes. 90 minutes. All right. So an hour and a half, how many times a week? Five or six? Six. Okay. So say you do 30 minutes of cardio in addition to that. That's six days a week that you're in the gym for 22 hours. You have another 22 hours throughout your day, which you need to be optimizing to get the best results. So often what I see people do, they focus and and don't get me wrong. There's high priority principles, which we're going to go over, but they focus just on the nutrition. They focus just on their training. And that might be a cumulative Say four hours a day if someone's eating adequately in terms of, you know, sitting down, taking a break, you know, eating slowly, chewing their food might be four total hours, but they have another 20 hours throughout their day that if they don't optimize that within terms of stress management, within terms of sleep quality, in terms of, you know, the balance of their autonomic nervous system from going from sympathetic, which should be only done during training to parasympathetic. All those other things influence, you know, the results you're going to see. So I always, you know, bring that back home. And I always encourage people to consider not only the physiological sides, like the stuff that's affecting your physical body, but the psychological aspects as well, because the brain and body, there's such a connection and and you can only do as much as the brain tells you to. So if you have all these limitations in terms of self-limiting beliefs or these health issues, which are causing downstream effects on energy levels, on productivity, on, uh, you know, mental focus and things like that, you're not going to get the same results. So that's why I always come back to the whole statement of a, you know, a healthy body is a responsive body. Because think about it. If we look at physique transformation and improving body composition from even just a physiological perspective, you'll realize that in order to optimize your body composition outcomes, you'll need to have your internal health optimized. So if your internal health is not in a good place, your body will not grow muscle or burn fat effectively. And we, we always have to think about inputs and outputs. So for instance, in order to change your body, you need to be able to apply a stress in, in the form of training and nutrition and even cardio in some aspects. And even more important than just the stress being applied, you need to be able to adapt to those stressors to, you know, at least create adaptations that you're looking for. So if you're, the issue is if your body is already stressed from an internal health perspective, you have high blood pressure, you have high blood lipids, you have, um, you know, skewed cholesterol values, you have a high resting heart rate, you're in sympathetic dominant state, you know, your body's already under an excessive amount of stress and it has too much to deal with, which it's going to prioritize over the external stresses of training that you're trying to put upon it. So if you're in a bad state of health, your body's going to prioritize that over training. You know what I mean? So you're going to be under recovered. You're not going to be utilizing nutrients properly. You're going to be, you know, losing muscle. If you're in a, in a fat loss phase, you're going to be gaining body fat. If you're in a surplus, you know, so these are all things that I try to get across to people because honestly, and I know it sounds cliche, but the healthier your body is, the more it'll be able to adapt to your diet, to your training, and the more likely you'll be able to see the positive results you're looking for. And don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place where we have to put health a little bit to the side. When you're a couple weeks out from a contest prep, I'm never going to tell a client, listen, we got to make sure that you're sleeping eight hours a night, but you know, because you can't sleep, you're, you're hungry as could be, or you're not going to deal with, with some psychological stress. There are, there's a time and a place for everything, but we have to prioritize that the, mo- the majority of the year that we're prioritizing health along with our body composition goals and our pursuit towards those things. Absolutely. And that's, 
basically is the whole ecosystem of things could, that could impact your results. Like, and all I was having, I think it's too easy for people to segregate it to, okay, I trained hard. I hit my macros. Thus I should see the results. But like, I know I was having this conversation or even like, Hey, I hit X number of hours of sleep. So like I was having this conversation with a client yesterday. Uh, she was saying, Hey, I slept seven hours last night and I ate a good pre-workout meal, but my training felt really shitty. Like what, what gives? And it's like, well, we have again, like this whole, like, what are your, what are your stress levels? Like, like, what was your sleep? There's so many different things we could dig into here. And again, man, I think that it's so valuable for people to understand. So you've alluded to a couple of times, you have these high priority principles for improving health and body composition. Can you dig into those for us? Absolutely. So I do want to say a caveat. So this list is not all inclusive. These are the things I focus on. These are what I call the high priority principles after we've nailed the basics. So we have to keep in consideration that consistency and adherence have to be there. That is the foundation of any uh, physique pursuit. Then we have to make sure that your calories and macronutrients are in a place that they're, that they should be. But from there, I started looking at say like the pyramid or the hierarchy of importance a little bit differently than other people. You know, I have an enormous amount of respect for people like Eric Helms or one of my mentors, Dr. Scott Stevenson, and how they do it is it's more like compliance and adherence on the bottom. It's then overall calories, then it's macronutrient distribution, then it's micronutrients. Um, or then it's nutrient timing, the micronutrients, and then it's supplementation. And I deal with it a little bit different, but I think we're all driving home to the same thing. You have to put things in in, in numerical value in terms of its importance. So how I deal with my clientele and how I approach their programming in this health-centric coaching model, beyond just that of calories, macros, and their training, is I focus first on a top-down approach. So the first thing I'm dealing with, which oftentimes, you know, my clients that are new to this, they kind of like, um, they get surprised by this. But the first thing I focus on is stress management. Stress is the biggest thing in our lives. You know, the first step to improving your levels of stress are to acknowledge them and increase your awareness around them. Because there are many things that can be acting in your life as a stressor, and we don't acknowledge or, or even recognize them. Like many people make the mistake of only acknowledging stress as being like the mental things that they find to be a burden, like a deadline at work or a relationship issue or, you know, an altercation with someone. But there's so many more things that encompass that stress bucket or that allostatic load, that total stress load. So what we have to do is I take a step back and I try to pull back the layers of the onion with my clients. And what I do is I try to separate stress into almost like a pie chart. And I show them what different aspects of you know, their lives are causing stress that they might not realize. Because sometimes I bring up something like, for instance, training, we'll talk about training as a stressor. And they're like, no, that's my stress relief. Well, dude, if you're not, if you're sleeping three hours a night, you have a newborn son and you're trying to train two hours a day, six days a week, that's a stressor. You do not have those extra resources. So it's all about taking it into like this more all-encompassing view, looking at things from the outside. And I try to break it up into different things. So how I look at stress is we have our mental and psychological stress. So this could be work-related expectations, financial stress, like bills and um, being in debt, stuff like that, that really like weighs on you constantly. That's like that low-grade chronic stress. Um, or even things like anxiety, you know, things that are constantly kind of nagging at you and causing you excess stress. Then we have emotional stress. This could be things like body image issues or having self-confidence issues. We find that often in the, in the fitness industry. Um, you know, this could also, the emotional component could also include like relationship stress or even having kids. So I, I work with a lot of busy parents and they love their children and they don't see them directly as a stress, but they are, you know, the, the lack of sleep or, or the excess responsibility. And those are things that are Yes, they're out of our control, but we still have to acknowledge them. They are a stressor. So we, we have to allocate towards these things, some energy towards that. And then we have the physical stress. And most people look at this as like your lack of sleep, improper recovery, 
But we also have to consider the nutrition and training aspect of that because dieting is a stressor. Training hard is a stressor. And even if we love to do these things, you know, this causes many people to overlook them as a stressor, but they are. And that's where we have to look at modulating and modifying these variables because those are the ones that are most within our control. So I always tell my clients, you know, we have to look at stress management from this top-down approach and see what is within our control. So really, you know, after I acknowledge stress, I start looking into stress management because, you know, just knowing what to do or knowing what's going on and what's causing stress is, is not enough. We have to look at ways to mitigate. And I think a lot of people have issues in progressing their physique because they only focus on maybe acknowledging some stress and then neglecting it. Whereas you have to be able to do something and make changes to be able to address those stress. So the first thing I do in order to manage my client's stress is I have them focus on implementing stress mitigation techniques, which helps bring them out of like this sympathetic state, this stress flight or fight state, and into more of a parasympathetic rest and digest state or rest and recovery state. And honestly, the methods I use with, you know, um, in terms of stress mitigation, it differs from client to client based on their time, their lifestyle, their preferences. Um, so for some, it's like a walk in nature. I want them to get that, that environmental factor. Just get out in nature, get the greenhouse effect that's going to help with endorphins. Um, for some, it's journaling. Some find that really like to be uh, very... Um, it's a coping mechanism for them. They can just journal and, and vent out everything. And then for others, it's meditation or yoga, but not hot yoga because that's a stressor. So um, what I also try to do is I'm very into the psychology aspect of coaching, of dieting, of training, because I suffered with eating disorders and things of that sort. So I really did dive into that early on. And I, what I really try to do is get clients to reframe how they look at stress because perceived stress could be even worse than stress itself. So how your perception of what's stressing you, sometimes we have people that have these little nagging stressors and they're things they could do something about, but they don't. And they let them just, you know, grind at them day in and day out. So for instance, you know, I live near New York City and I have a lot of clients that are busy, you know, business professionals and they travel into the city and their commute is their biggest stressor. And they're constantly like, they're the people that are just sitting in traffic yelling and they're super stressed and they get to work and they're in a terrible mood and they do the same thing on the way back. And it's like, let's, there are so many things that are outside of our control. The commute is outside of your control. The traffic is outside of your control, but what's in your control is how you respond to it. So put on an audiobook. Put on a podcast. Do something that's keeping you mindful during the activity where you're getting something productive. You're doing something to distract your mind and, and you know, either learn something or get some entertainment. Whereas you use that time in a productive manner rather than letting it be a, a time period in which you're reactive and you're in this stress, you know, overly sympathetic state. And then the two stresses that I do account for with all my clients is like I alluded to the training and nutrition aspect, because these are the two that are most within our control. These are things that we can decide on, we can monitor and we can manage. So if, you know, stress is high, I'm going to, you know, modify what we're doing. If they're in a dieting phase, maybe we'll do a, a, a refeed. Maybe we'll do a diet break, something like that. We'll pull back. We'll go into a maintenance phase um, from training. You know, this is something that isn't popular with many of my clients, but, you know, I'm implementing deloads or I'm doing, you know, active rest phases. Right. You know, I can't have a parent that's, you know, you know, watching multiple kids and constantly stressed out and not sleeping, you know, training six days a week. I, I actually, at this point in my career, I don't have anyone training six days a week. I, my max is five days per week because I work with a lot of busy professionals. Right. And even those that I work with that are IFBB pros, I have guys, I have two clients right now that have been on the Olympia level stage. It's only during certain phases that I have them training excessively. You know what I mean? We have to modify things. There has to be, you know, a lot of people talk about periodization and they talk about in terms of reps, in terms of different stressors. So they'll have a neurological phase. They'll have a metabolic stress phase. They'll have a hypertrophy phase. But we also have to 
periodize rest. We have to periodize recovery. Same thing with dieting. We have to utilize, or I'm a big fan of utilizing nutritional periodization because we can't just put in one input year round and expect the same or better result. You're going to get to a place where what worked for you previously no longer works for you. So this is, you know, I really look at stress from this overall all encompassing, you know, viewpoint because it is what I say. This is what I always tell people. Stress is the biggest bottleneck preventing you from getting to your results. Absolutely. And that's even something I've seen in myself. And I would love to get your thoughts on for you personally, because I'm guessing you can relate to like how, okay, I have the coaching business. I have all these things. Like I, I think you're a very like driven type a, like I imagine for you, it's probably pretty hard to just chill. Like, I know, like when we've gone back and forth, you're DMing me at like 2 a.m. my time. So I know, I know you're like up in, I'm up at 3.30 every morning. For you, like, what have you, not to get you too far off track here, but like, what have you, for you personally, like what has been most helpful in managing this? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk about how I manage my schedule because that is a thing that was most difficult for me. So not only do I do online coaching, but I'm also the national sales director of a international sports nutrition brand called Innova Farm. So I have two careers that I, I double dip in essentially. And so what I do is I've gotten very into time management and schedule, like time blocking. So I don't know if you're familiar with Cal Newport, the author. Yeah. So Cal Newport, I've taken a lot of his stuff. So I, I do deep work sessions for each of the businesses. I have certain times that I allocate, like for instance, I'm getting, you know, I'm hitting you up with messages very early, but I'm about 3.30 every morning. And for the first two hours of my morning, I do me time. So me time includes some type of continuing education. I'm always doing a mentorship or always involved in a continuing education course that I'll, I already have it queued. So at night before I go to bed, I have like a bucket list where I'll just put down, I do a, a brain dump essentially. And that's what really starts my morning. So I do a brain dump, everything I need to do for the next day. And then I queue, I put up on my phone or on my laptop, the next lecture I'm going to watch the next morning. So during those first two hours of the morning, I'm not doing anything but absorbing information and doing things for me. That's part of my morning routine. I might meditate. I'm going to do some cardio. And then I'm going to get ready to go to the gym because I try to get into the gym at 6 a.m. So that I have everything that's very important to me personally done before my day starts, before my workday starts. So it's less hectic. And then throughout the day, I'm really into time management. And I'll do something like a Pomodoro method where I'll work for certain periods of time and then I'll take a break and either go into a walk where I just shut everything off in terms of I'm not looking at notifications. And this might be a 10 minute break. I might go for a 10 minute walk after a meal, but it's just like this ability to to essentially decompress and also get myself out of the state of being in that sympathetic drive state. Cause I am, I am super type A and people can always tell that about me because I'm, I'm extremely driven towards things. And I think that's, that's really helped me, but I'll tell you, it's hindered me before. Like years ago, you know, I suffered from adrenal insufficiency. I had a flatline cortisol level. You know, I dealt with a lot of physiological and, and, you know, um, health ramifications for the lifestyle I live. And it was because of being overstressed. So that's what really made me take a step back and say, you know, at the time I, I dealt with it so early, it was called adrenal fatigue. You know what I mean? So they don't even call it that anymore. So it's funny, but I've had to learn that there are times to push and times to pull back. Same thing with your training, same thing with your nutrition. So I actually often, when I speak to people about, like I mentor certain, certain um, clients of mine, coaches, and I'll talk to them about periodizing your life. It's not just nutrition. It's not just training. It's your day. It's your work schedule. It's everything so that you can make You can maximize your time and your productivity within those times because I'll tell you, when I get out of sync with my routine, that's when I feel the most stressed because now I'm behind. Now I have extra deadlines. And like I touched on, a lot of those things are outside of our control, but those that are within, we're completely in control of. So the reason I train so early, I wouldn't say that's optimal for, for, 
for performance, but it makes sure that I'm not waiting until the evening where I might get caught up with a call or a Zoom meeting with a client or, or anything else. It makes sure that I got those things that are high priorities to me out of the way. They're done and over with. You know, I was out of the gym at 745 this morning. I had the whole day, you know, so I can make sure that I could I get done what I need for me because I really believe, and I, I'll say this to any coach, to any entrepreneur or any person in general, you can only do for others as good as you do for yourself. So you need to pour your cup before you pour anyone else's. And I deal with, you know, I've worked with almost a thousand clients at this point and I've been able to help so many people, but it's because I've always prioritized fitness, health, and all these other aspects for myself, stress management as well. Um, so those are little things that I've integrated, but I get it from the entrepreneur side. Like it's really hard because you always feel like you want to be doing more and it's more and more and more and more and more. And then that's where I have to make comparisons to other things. And I have to look back at my training logs and say, when I did more volume, when I did more sessions in the, in the gym per week, did that help me really? No. So what in my, in my mind, am I doing an extra two hours of work? Is that really going to help me? If it's less productive work and I'm just utilizing more time, I'm wasting my time. So let's maximize the time we have. Let's put it into time blocks. Let's utilize some type of scheduling where you're managing things so that you can maximize every moment of your day. I love it, man. Very, very relatable. Um, to bring us back into these high priority principles, what are typically these health metrics that you look at that? Because I believe that's like your next principle, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. So number two, and this is something that a lot of people, they're starting to get into now, but I've been doing this for years, is uh, biomarkers, aka health metrics. Mm -hmm. So I look at a ton of subjective and objective data with my clients. And although I value the subjective data, like how a client feels, how their energy levels are, their sleep quality, uh, their recovery capacity, um, their sleep you know, quality, their recovery, their digestion, um, your stress, all those things. I also like tracking more objective measures that we can track and monitor numerically over time. As you can't, I always tell people, you can't manage what you don't measure. You know what I mean, so if I don't have an objective marker, I really don't know something is going on. So, for instance, the comparison I give to my clients when they first come to me is, I say, you've been tracking your macros and calories, correct? And they're usually most of them are on board with that. Or you've been tracking your weight during a weight loss phase. Why wouldn't you track other measurements? You're tracking your volume in the gym. You're tracking your sets and reps. Even if you're doing it just like sporadically or you're, you're following a template, you have some type of numerical and, you know, way to analyze things. But a lot of people don't do that with their health. And that's where I look at other non-invasive methods to do this because I always require blood work with anyone I work with, but it, you know, it's dependent on the client, their goals, their background, their history, as well as their finances. So blood work could be in some of my pro athletes every eight to 12 weeks. And then with some of my clients, it's every six to 12 months. It's really dependent on the person and all those variables. So the three main biometrics or health markers I track are resting heart rate, fasted blood glucose, and sometimes postprandial as well, and then blood pressure. And those things are three easy ways to get kind of a better and more objective reading of health but they're non-invasive and they're cheap and easy to do. You know what I mean? So for instance, resting heart rate, pretty much what that shows is, you know, a like things like autonomic nervous system balance, which is our ability to go from a sympathetic state, which is our fight or flight to a parasympathetic state or our rest and recovery state. And this also shows like your aerobic capacity and your cardiovascular conditioning. So it's really important for heart health. So my goal with all my clients is to have their resting heart rate between 50 to 62 beats per minute, because that's what's been shown more in the research. 62 and over has been shown a higher risk for like cardiovascular events, strokes, and things like that. This gives me a bunch of information. So for instance, if someone comes to me, and I've had this many times, like, you know, you're a fit guy. I'm sure you have a low resting heart rate. My resting heart rate's 48. So, you know, 
on average. So it's like, I'm tracking this stuff all the time with myself and with others. But generally when I see someone that's fit, they're between that 50 and 62. If they're stressed, I'll see it go up. So I'll know with a client that I've been working with for a while, if all of a sudden their resting heart rate went through the roof, they're either overtrained, overstressed, or underslept. It's one of those three things. But if I have someone come to me and they've been tracking their resting heart rate, they've never done it. And it's in the eighties. And I often have this. And it's not just like my gen pop clients, my lifestyle clients. I have competitors all the time that come to me and their whole autonomic nervous system is out of whack because they're that sympathetic. They're, they're us. They're type A and they're approaching their physique goals, their business goals. They're not getting sleep. Like they're, they're super sympathetic. And so what that shows me is that they're stuck in a sympathetic state when it's, it's that elevated. Like I had a girl I did a consultation with yesterday. She is a national level bikini competitor, has placed multiple times at different national shows throughout the years. She's lean as could be. And she had an 84. This girl's 130 pounds. It's not like a 250 pound bodybuilder that I've worked with. So that's, as I said, the first thing on your intake form that rung out to me was that I knew you had to be in a, a stress state. And when we dived in deeper, she kind of went through what's going on with her life. So when someone comes to me in this type of state where they have a high resting heart rate, I try to explain to them the severity of this because your resting heart rate should be at, you know, that's when your heart rate should be at its lowest because you've just been at rest throughout the night and you just finished the night of sleep. So if you're waking up with extremely elevated resting heart rate, that's already a, a sign that things are going in the wrong direction. Because think about it. If you're waking up like that, you're getting an adrenaline and cortisol dump, you know, immediately upon the morning. And we do need cortisol for the cortisol awakening response, but you're having an over uh, production of that. And that's like your body. It's, it's almost like we're living out in ancestral times evolutionarily. And it, it, we woke up to a lion chasing us. Yeah. I would expect we're trying to mobilize energy. You know what I mean, we, we, our heart rate's getting up, but think about it. What I, I always try to come back to, especially with those that are very body composition oriented is if your resting heart rate is 84, for instance, what do you think it's going to get to when I put a heavy load under you? Because we have research that shows that you know systolic blood pressure gets up to 400 over 200 on a leg press. So if you're already stressed, I'm putting you in a state where you're going to be you know, more susceptible to cardiovascular events, and you're also going to have a limited aerobic capacity. So those are the people that come to me and I say, what's your conditioning work like? Or what is your training endurance like? If I put you through a Garanda eight by eight, would you be able to last? Could you do 30 second you know, breaks in between? And they can't. They never can. You know, they're, they're spent. So that's just an indication of not only internal health, but also how it translates to you know, their training performance. And I always try to bring those two together because people isolate things in silos or in boxes. They'll say, well, health's here and performance is here. No, they meet in the middle. So if your health is suboptimal, your training performance will be suboptimal. And then when I'm able to point that out and not just give them the facts about health, they're like, wow, I got to work on this. So the next one I, I utilize is fasted blood glucose. And this is something I've been tracking for over 10 years. We're going to go into insulin sensitivity later, but I had my father succumb to metabolic syndrome, which actually came as a result of uh, diabetes. So he developed diabetes, eventually had a heart attack, and then suffered from kidney failure and, and died last year as a result. So it's something I'm super passionate about. And I, I've dived in deep for over 10 years on this topic, and it just made me more aware. So I utilize fasted blood glucose as, an, as a marker for numerous things. It shows us our insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning. So how, you know, we're able to partition nutrients into either muscle or fat. And then it also tells me how a client is responding to their current nutrition plan and their macronutrient setup. Um, and I find this especially important when someone's in a surplus because I need to, you know, be able to see beyond just their photos. Are they utilizing these nutrients properly? Are they assimilating them? Are they, you know, uh, partitioning them into muscle rather than fat? Because oftentimes 
what I'll notice with clients over the years is some people just due to like their body fat set point or settling point, or even like their body fat distribution, there's certain people that they just don't hold it in areas where you would see. So like you, Jeremiah, before the call, you mentioned that you hold a lot of like weight in your hips and thighs, which right. isn't the meal pattern, you know, fat distribution areas. It's usually low stomach and low back. So for you, if you were doing check-ins with me and I saw your stomach was lean, you know, your, your back was lean. And I'm not getting glute shots because I don't believe you compete and there would be no necessity. So um, I wouldn't notice that. So I need to track other things. I need objective measurements. And I also track this, which a lot of people don't think about, but I'm going to open up your eyes to this, is I track this because we got to realize clients are only going to tell us so much. And once we develop a relationship, they're more open to things, but often they don't know what they don't know. So they don't know what improper sleep is. They don't know what improper, you know, amounts of stress are. So that's why I do focus on the stress first. But if I see someone coming in and they've had an off week and they haven't noted it in their, in their check-in, but they were at an average of 85 milligrams per deciliter. And all of a sudden they're over hundred, which is the pre-diabetic range. I'm going to ask first two things. Are you stressed or did you not get sleep last night? Because those are two things that plays up a major factor in, in seeing a transient rise or an acute rise in blood glucose. So when it comes to fasted blood glucose, I generally recommend you stay between 70 and 84 milligrams per deciliter. So that's like the target value that I'm looking for. And this is because for every milligram above an 84 on your fasted blood glucose, you increase your risk of becoming diabetic in the next 10 years by 6%. So that's, we have clinical studies on that. So say you're a 95 fasted blood sugar. Uh, reading. The doctor would say that's normal because if you look at the standard American value, it's 65 milligrams to 99 milligrams. But in reality, if you clock in at a 95, you're at a 60% higher risk for developing diabetes, which, you know, that's when people hear that, they, they kind of open up their eyes, you know, right. it, it makes them aware, you know, it's scary. So this is why I always look at trends. I'm always trying to look at trends and address issues proactively rather than reactively. So instead of waiting until someone goes over 100 and their doctor says, oh, you're pre-diabetic, we need to treat this, I'm looking at the week-to-week -week averages and seeing where they fall so that I could address them nutritionally, stress-wise, training-wise, all those things. And then the last aspect that I dive into is blood pressure. So this is another sign that you're stressing in a suboptimal place of health. You know, recently, unfortunately, the American uh, standard was raised to 130 over 80 when it was previously 120 over 80. Um, but this, we got to think about it with when it comes to standards, uh, like values on blood work and just metrics in, in general, it's based off population average. So if we think about it from the American society, we're getting sicker each year. So we can't expect that our, our values are going to stay low if everyone's trending upwards. But that's where I try to hold my clients to a better standard. So ideally, the American Heart Association had initially put the optimal range of blood pressure at 115 over 80. So that's what I'm looking for. And um, you know, for those that come to me with high blood pressure or hypertension, so if they're in those 130s, 140s, the last thing I'm going to have them do is have neurological work. Because like I said before, that's only going to compound the issue. That's only going to drive blood pressure even more. Now, what we have to realize is that cardiovascular risk doubles with each increase of 20 over 10 millimeters. So for instance, if you go from uh, 115 over 75 to uh, 135 over 85, you double your cardiovascular risk. And then on the inverse, this is where I really focus on people because they get overwhelmed by that number. So I said, listen, you know, if you just lower your blood pressure by five millimeters, it correlates to a 7% decrease in cardiovascular mortality. So these are little things that we could do. We can modulate, you know, your electrolyte balance, your, your nutrition, your stress, all these different components to improve these. And I also then go through um, what's called a primer phase or what I refer to as a primer phase to improve all these metrics. So if I have a new client come to me or if I have an existing client where these metrics have gotten out of value, I'm going to look at utilizing um, a, something I call a primer phase, which is pretty much 
yeah, focus towards you know decreasing blood pressure, decreasing blood sugar, and then decreasing resting heart rate so that we can optimize and then go into our next phase. So in order to mitigate these issues that we see, I'm adjusting their training, their nutrition, their lifestyle, and trying to lower stress and then increase aerobic and cardiovascular fitness at the same time. So this phase usually lasts between four and six weeks. In the worst cases, I've seen eight weeks, but I see noticeable improvements in that phase. So during this phase, I'm going to do several things. I'm going to include more aerobic work. So we're going to do like morning and post-meal walks into a client's program. That's not only going to improve their aerobic capacity, but it's also going to help with, um, you know, blood sugar excursions, lowering that blood sugar value postprandially. And also the reason I do like low intensity work is because it puts them in a parasympathetic state. So this is not where I would utilize HIIT cardio, although HIIT cardio is great for aerobic fitness, but if someone already has a jacked up blood pressure and jacked up heart rate, the last thing I need to do is get those even higher. So this also allows for them to, you know, how I get it across to like my meatheads is this is improving work capacity. So the better you get aerobically, the harder you can push in the gym, the more endurance you're going to have, the more training volume you can handle. And the more, you know, you can get out of a session in terms of density, in terms of volume, in terms of intensity. And then the other two components that I really focus on to improve these, especially if someone's like coming to me and they're really off is on losing fat and then on their sleep quality. And so we've seen that like in research that for every pound you lose, you'll reduce systolic blood pressure by one point. So if someone comes to me overweight and they're at that 135 over 85, I'm trying to get 20 pounds off them. You know what I mean? Because that's going to lower it into that healthy range. And it's these little things, you know what I mean? If someone's 300 pounds to lose, you know, 15, you know, not even 10% of their body weight, 7% of their body weight, losing 20 pounds, it's going to have a market improvement on these health. And then what I've noticed with these primer phases is that by improving these metrics, I'm able to get clients' bodies to respond better. I get them feeling better, both physically and mentally. They start recovering better and more optimally, and they're able to then train harder and then process and partition nutrients more effectively. So we have all these benefits. You know, you have improved health markers. You have better fitness levels. You drop body fat. You lose stress-induced water retention because we're driving down that cortisol response. You're feeling better mentally and physically. And then also, a lot of times with doing this, you know, if I just put them into a health phase and I didn't address other things, they might lose motivation, which is a huge component to, you know, both consistency and adherence. But because they're seeing results in some capacity, you know, someone came to me to build muscle, but they're not in the state to build muscle. You know, if they weren't seeing some type of progress, they weren't seeing that fat loss, they might not stick with the program. But they're seeing an objective, you know, objectively seeing improvements where they're able to buy into the process and realize this is what I have to do now. This is a phase, but it's, it's productive. And then we go into the next one. Okay. I love it. And that was actually going to be one of my questions is as far as getting buy-in around this. That makes complete sense, man. And it really, again, brings it back to like why a healthier body is, body is a more responsive body. Um, as far as then the aerobic piece of this, before we move on to digestion, um, as far as the aerobic piece of this, then is that like, hey, we have a specific heart rate that we're trying to hit on these walks? Or is it just like, hey, go for a walk, chill? Or I imagine it varies client to client. 100%. So it definitely varies. So I'm starting with every time that I... I work with a new client, I'm meeting them where they're at. So for instance, if I have an overweight individual come to me, I can't say, listen, we're doing a 60 minute fasted walk in the morning at 120 to 130 because they're not going to have the, the cardiovascular fitness to do that. But if it's the average clientele, most of my, my average clientele are dad bods and, and soccer moms and, and regular people. And then I also have a lot of physique competitors as well. They're people that have some experience in fitness. They just let it get away from them. So they've either eaten improperly, followed nutritional approaches that weren't right for their body. So that's where I'm starting generally with 20 to 30 minutes of aerobic work 
every single day. And from there, I'm titrating up based on their biomarkers. So every week I'm getting this biofeedback. I'm tracking their resting heart rate. I'm tracking their blood glucose. And I'm tracking their, their blood pressure. And when I see improvements, we keep going. If I see that they're not moving, we have to do a substantial more amount of work. So I'll tell you, I've had people improve this doing 30 minutes of aerobics every day, you know, five days a week. And then I've had people that we've had to go up to 90 minutes a day, you know, five days a week, seven days per week for a short period. And what I always try to get across to people is once you get your fitness, you know, we know that for building muscle, for instance, once you build muscle, it's hard to lose. It might be hard to gain more muscle, but we even have research studies in terms of detraining. And I actually sent all these out to my clients when we had, you know, in lockdown initially, because I live in New Jersey. So we were locked down the longest out of any state. Yeah, it takes three weeks to lose actual tissue. And you could use one ninth of the training volume to actually maintain the same amount of muscle tissue you have now. So we've had studies on that. So, and remember what you're losing is that glycogen in the muscle. You're losing muscular fullness. You're not losing actual muscle protein or or contractile tissue. So the same thing happens with aerobic fitness. I believe that they've done Joel Jameson, who's big on HRV. He trains a lot of the top MA athletes. I've heard him say it's either two to 4% you lose per week in terms of aerobic fitness. So if we work for eight weeks, on an aerobic fitness phase, and I get you up to 90 minutes, and it's only the last two or three weeks, you maximize that aerobic capacity, that aerobic conditioning. Right. We could go eight weeks without doing cardio or not doing anywhere near that, and you're only at a 16% decrease than you were at your max, which is inconsequential, insignificant. So it's, it's a short period of time. It differs. Generally, it'll be 30 minutes to an hour. Some people, like I said, they're the outliers. You know, I never say never, but it's it's a very small, it might be 5% of my clientele that need to do 90 minutes. And we also have to take in consideration that during this primer phase, some people are weight training very little because they're so stressed. If someone comes to me and they're at 160 over 100 on their blood pressure, they have a resting heart rate in the 80s or 90s. They have fasted blood sugar at over you know 120. They're in that almost diabetic range. That's where I'm saying we got to do less weight training, less stress in the system. We need to do a lot of work, aerobic work. So if they were training four days a week for an hour and not doing any cardio, I might swap that out and do 90 minutes of cardio five days per week and maybe two days per week of an upper lower split and just have them train for 40 minutes, you know, in a metabolic stress phase, because I'm like, I'm saying, I'm not trying to overload the system system with neurological or strength-based work. So it's all person dependent, but it does range. Usually the heart rate will vary between 120 and 140. I'm looking for like that 60 to 70% of um, maximum heart rate, but it's still low intensity. I want them, a lot of times I want them to get outside. I want that, you know, I'm going to talk about sleep later. I want that sunlight effect, that sunlight exposure to help with circadian rhythm. So it's, it's enjoyable. It's not, I'm never going to tell a client, especially during this phase because they're just coming in. Hey, I got you 60 minutes on a Stairmaster. No, right. absolutely not. It's, it's going to be something enjoyable. I want them to be able to disconnect mentally, you know, go into nature, get some type of that greenhouse effect, but also do it in a fashion where they're getting some sun exposure. They're able to um, kind of declutter their mind, you know, work on parasympathetic nervous system balance. Because a lot of times, especially when I take someone out of the gym, and I say, listen, you've been training six days a week. I need you to train three days a week. When they go into the gym to do cardio, it's almost like a tease. So I'm trying to really reset that, you know, this is a new lifestyle I'm trying to make for them. So I'm trying to, you know, kind of disconnect them from certain things and reconnect them with other things. Right. Okay. That makes complete sense. Cool. Let's dig into digestion, man, which I believe is the next priority here. So with digestion, I try to take a top-down approach in terms of digestion. So a lot of people, they'll start with the, the chewing or they'll start with the mouth, the salivary gland. I actually start with mindset first because we have to realize that in order to optimize digestion, you are not what you eat. You are what you assimilate and absorb. So that starts with being in a parasympathetic state, which allows you to rest and digest. 
So what I really try to get across to clients is mindful eating. I want them to avoid distracted eating. So instead of just sitting on their phone or watching a show, um, I want them to be one with their meal. I want them to pay attention to every bite. Look at the visual cues. Yeah, I want them to not get so distracted on their phone or doing work. And I'm also a big thing that I do is I remove or I try to separate them from where they're working. So for instance, right now, a lot of us have been working at home, you know, either you, maybe some people are in an office, but a lot of people have made their home, their office. And what I find with that is if you're at your desk all day and you're stressed, you're taking work calls or emails, and then you eat in that same environment, you are stuck in sympathetic overdrive. Right. So just moving to another room, just going to your dining room, just separating from that and disconnecting from the stress of work will allow you to eat more mindfully rather than in this distracted fashion where you're looking at your computer, seeing, you know, DMs or seeing emails rather come in and, and reminding you, oh, I got to get back. I just want you to take 10 to 15 minutes. And then from there, I'm really big on chewing. So chewing your food, it's not only going to help with digestion, but it helps with satiety. So doing more chews, you know, it's also going to help with salivary enzymes, you know, amylase and all these different enzymes that are going to help break down your food and help you digest and assimilate them. And then what I find is that most people don't chew enough and they eat way too quickly, which not only causes digestive issues like glass, gas and bloating, but also, also causes people to overeat or feel less you know, satiated after meals. So that's huge with me. So I start with those things. And then if a client has specific issues, then I specifically target those. But I would rather, you know, I work in the supplement industry. I've formulated a lot of supplements over the years. I like to take more of a holistic approach or a you know, functional medicine approach. I'm looking at root causes. So before I ever throw in a digestive enzyme, I'm looking at how are you eating? What, what situation are you eating in? What environment are you in? What's your mindset? And then from there, if there's a need for you know, pancreatic enzymes or digestive enzymes or some type of intervention, then we can look at that. But until you optimize the basics, I'm big into, you know, build a foundation with the basics and then move on to the nuances from there. Okay. Okay. I love it. And the reality is like simple things that I think most people have heard before, but it is so hard to, and I, I know that's a major thing I struggle with. Like, okay, I'm going to check emails quick while I'm eating or I'm going to answer these DMs or whatever. But, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. So I know how, how disruptive it is. Right. It's, and it's, it's very much like, again, simple things, but it's when you're cognizant of it, it definitely makes a massive difference. So let's dig into then um, daily movement and energy flux. Okay. So daily movement, I, I will frame it like that, but what I really am referring to is energy flux. So energy flux is our energy turnover. Other people refer to this as like G flux. And it was something that was popular like years ago, but it kind of has fallen out. And what's funny is there's so much new literature that's come out in the last couple of years. I've, I've actually done a couple of presentations on it that show like the benefits of high energy flux. So energy flux is, is our energy turnover. It's essentially the amount of calories we consume and then how many we expend through activity and the relationship between those two. So my goal with clients is to get them into a state of high energy flux or higher energy flux than they were at previously. And I do this for a variety of reasons. And it's because it allows them to you know, maintain a leaner, healthier physique year round. Actually, the physical activity throughout the day, not just going to the gym, just throughout the day, being active and moving will help with being more sensitive to satiety signals. And it also helps with appetite regulation. So we see in, in specific studies, like with Bengali workers, that if you're seated most of the day, like say if you're in an office position, you tend to overconsume calories despite under expending calories in the calorie expenditure side. However, for those that were all or were factory workers that worked more, they did eat more, but it actually matched their, their energy expenditure. So they were an energy balancer at maintenance calories, just, you know, naturally without tracking any of these things, uh, being in a higher energy flux can also help, you know, lead to better metabolic health 
as the increase in activity allows for better insulin sensitivity, better blood flow, better partitioning of nutrients. So you not only are able to eat more, but you process and handle these nutrients better, especially carbohydrates, because you're getting that increase in insulin sensitivity. Uh, it allows you to sustain a higher caloric intake than you would otherwise, which I find to be a really big benefit of this because not only does it make your diet and nutrition process more enjoyable, but it also is easier to adhere to because you have higher calories and more food flexibility. And then also because of that, mind you, a lot of people come to me and I'm looking over like their chronometer data that I'm, I'm punching in and they're micronutrient deficient. Well, if I can get you to eat more calories, especially when you're trying to lose weight, I'm able to make sure that your micronutrients are more covered without having to go the route of just general supplementation. And then from there, we also see, you know, better aerobic fitness, you the increased activity. We see reductions in blood pressure, improvements in resting heart rate, and then it also increases metabolic flexibility, which is my next one. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So some realistic steps then to ramp this up would that just be like a daily step goal. And I imagine a lot of this goes hand in hand with your primer phase as well, correct? Yep. So it's a daily step goal. Um, I usually try to make it non-invasive, meaning I'm trying to get them to move throughout the day. So what I'll implement is the first thing before I do cardio, unless it's phase specific, I'll just implement post-meal walks. So listen, you have three larger meals as compared to your five, you have three, three large meals, two smaller meals. After those three meals, take a 10 minute walk. That's been shown to be twice as, as effective as a type two diabetic medication called metformin. So that's going to help with that nutrient partitioning. It's going to get them moving. And I also find it just from a practical standpoint, I do it myself, my clients do it super easy. You walk out your door, you get 10 minutes, you know, worth of steps in. And you also, you tend to get less tired after meals because you are active. You're, you're not sitting on your couch or in your chair and moving like a sloth. So it's just a little, it, it's a easily implemented habit. And then from there, if they're unable to meet those steps, like for my guys that work really long at, uh, office hours, that's where I'll implement more cardio. And I'll literally just tell them, listen, the only reason that I have intentional cardio here is because you're not hitting that step goal. And I will say the step goal, it's not like I have 10,000 steps as the metric. There's no like single metric for someone. What really we see in the in the research is between 7,000 and 8,500 steps is the bare baseline that you want to see for um, better blood glucose as well as better triglycerides. Uh, they do these things called challenge tests where they'll have someone stay seated um, throughout the day. Then they'll do um, a metabolic capacity test essentially where they'll have them go through cardio and they see how long it takes to get blood glucose. So carbohydrates and um you know, lipids or fats out of the system after as compared to when they're active throughout the day. And that's really the, the bare baseline that they've seen is 7,000 to 8,500, depending on the individual. So generally, if someone comes to me and they're 2,000 steps. All right, this week, let's go to 5,000. Next week, let's go to 7,000. We titrate our way up. But I have guys that they're 10,000 every day and I can just keep them there. Or if, you know, it's, it's based on their needs. Right. Okay. Okay. I love it. Let's dig into metabolic flexibility then. And first and foremost, what is metabolic flexibility? And then like, why is this one of your high level principles? Yeah. So, all right. So metabolic flexibility simply is your ability to utilize both carbs and fats as fuel. So not just one or the other. So if you're someone who's metabolically flexible, you're able to switch, like easily switch between the two different fuel substrates, whether that be carbs or fats, and then oxidize or basically burn them as energy. So what we see is those who are overweight are oftentimes metabolically inflexible. And this is due to the fact that they have tons of stored fat in their cells, which doesn't allow them to have proper uptake of glucose and glycogen storage. So those are the people that they're, they're eating a lot of carbohydrates, but they're not utilizing them properly. They have high fasted blood sugar. You know, they suffer from insulin resistance due to this excess amount of energy that they've taken in chronically and their body's not responsive to insulin. So they're also like getting that flat, but f uh, fat feeling, you know what I mean? Like they're not getting pumps in the gym. Nothing's partitioning properly. 
And my goal with all my clients is have them metabolically flexible so that their body can utilize, you know, efficiently utilize whatever fuel source you supply it with, whether that be carbs or fats. So on off days or during fasted periods, I want them utilizing fats for energy because that's it's low, low level aerobic work. However, when we transfer over into anaerobic work or glycolytic work, like high volume training or Metcons or CrossFit, I want them utilizing carbohydrates properly because that is what we need to produce ATP. We need glycolysis to start the process of ATP production to fuel that energy, you know, um, expenditure. So that's where I'm trying to get them to be able to utilize both. And to address that, I'll utilize different diet days. I'll undulate things between, you know, off days, you know, and training days. So on training days, higher carb, lower fat on off days, higher, you know, uh, higher fat, lower carbs, just to try to match both their, I'm a big believer in periodizing your training and nutrition, but pairing them together. So meaning I'm matching what you're doing throughout the day, as well as your training phase with your nutrition on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And then with that, like on training days, one more question on that. How much are you digging into like, okay, peri-workout carb loading versus like these windows further away from your training? Are you digging too deep into that? Or do you think the main benefits are going to come from like higher fat on off days, higher carb on training days? So I do utilize nutrient timing. I am a big fan of nutrient timing, but it matters on the advancement of the client. So for instance, with my physique athletes, with my competitors, with people that are really trying to get their um, bodies to the next level and trying to get their performance to the next level, I definitely see a benefit, whether it be physiologically and even psychologically from, you know, utilizing more of your carbohydrates in that peri-workout perimeter. So pre intra and post. And so with that, I'll allocate more of those carbohydrates and lower fat meals to that pre, you know, intra and post-workout. So that would be, you know, pre-workout meal with fats, digesting carbs and a quick digesting uh, protein source, maybe like a little fat, like an MCT oil or, you know, almonds or something that's going to digest easily and quickly because digestion is something that I optimize first, something that sits well with the client and that they could utilize and not feel bogged down. And then intra-workout, I'm a big fan of either whether it be a highly branched cyclic dextrin or some type of high molecular weight carbohydrate that's going to have easy gastric emptying time. So it's not going to sit heavy in the stomach. So often I'll, I'll, I'll try to avoid dextrose unless someone's on a budget uh, just because it sits a little bit heavier and it has a slower gastric emptying time. And then I also utilize, you know, maybe a combination of usually post-workout will be a combination of different types of carbohydrate sources. So I utilize something like a rice for glucose primarily, and then a fructose source, which would be like a fruit, which is going to be, you know, sucrose, essentially both glucose and fructose um, so that we can have better, you know, glute four and glute five translocation, better absorption and glycogen replenishment. But like I said, like with my lifestyle clients, I don't need to dig into those nuances because it's not necessary yet. So I always say major in the minor, don't major in the minors, you know, nail the basics. And then when necessary, we get into the minutia. Absolutely. And that's, why you have this whole hierarchy and this is a lot closer to the bottom or the top if we would look at it. But regardless, um, next up, you have micronutrients. Let's dig into that. Yeah. So this is something I'm very passionate about and I pay a lot of attention to because like I said, I suffered from relative energy deficiency. And a lot of this was you know, caused in part by underfueling myself, but also being extremely micronutrient deficient. So for instance, what I see in clientele is that the most prevalent micronutrient deficiencies are vitamin D, Uh, choline, calcium, magnesium, uh, even sodium and potassium, especially. And then I also see a lot of people with iron deficiency, iodine deficiency, selenium, and zinc. 
And the issue with this is that this is population average wise. So 95% of the U.S. population last year was vitamin D deficient. And I think it's it's going to improve this year because COVID people put out a lot of information about it. But there's so many other key micronutrients that were lacking in our food due to inadequate you know, food quality choices and not being aware of things. So for instance, almost 100% of people are deficient in potassium and we need 4.7 grams per day. But many people look like a banana and they say, oh, that's enough for the day. That's like four to 600 milligrams. You are way off in terms of that. So it's, it's being very aware and of food choices. And that's why I use chronometer to create most of my plans because I want to be able to track that with specific clients because we have to realize that there's key cofactors. So for instance, when I have women come to me, especially, I often will punch in their diet and I'll notice that they're iodine, selenium, and zinc deficient. Then when I get their blood work, they're also their thyroid is low. So it's, you need, those are necessary cofactors for thyroid conversion. So I'm looking at all these little details because we've nailed in the macros, we've nailed in the calories, but it's about the composition of that food quality, not only to keep you satiated, but to keep you with the necessary cofactors, vitamins, and minerals needed for energy production, for recovery, for hormonal health, uh, for health in general. So these are all different things. You know, a lot of people overlook something like calcium because a lot of people don't eat dairy, whether it be due to sensitivity or just not liking it. But even, you know, calcium is so important, especially for women for bone health and then just for muscular signaling, you know, it has anabolic effects. So it's like, we don't, we can't overlook this. And that's why I'm not a huge proponent or fan of if it fits your macros. You know, I I believe, you know, inflexible dieting in terms of the flexible uh, restraint method, meaning like the mindset, flexible dieting was in, you know, essentially made to be a mindset from a psychology aspect. But a lot of times people are overlooking things and they're, you know, stepping over dimes, you know, or stepping over pennies to pick up dimes. Like, and, and it just doesn't make sense. We really have to focus on the quality of things. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, man. And again, it, it leads back to like that shift from health and fitness to mostly fitness. And I would say, and then you've been in the industry longer than me, but I would say that like with the rise of flexible dieting, that probably has become why like just this focus on fitness has become more prevalent. 100%. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that that doesn't work. So never is my message. If it fits your macros is wrong. If it fits your macros is ineffective. For instance, I was at a seminar this weekend and I got into a long conversation with Lauren Conlin about this. You know, she did a presentation on, on flexible dieting, but she brought it back and even admitted that a lot of the stuff that she put out initially was on if it fits your macros and she equated one to be in the same and they're not. If it fits your macros is a dietary approach, flexible dieting was meant to be a mindset that you don't have black and white, you know, arbitrary, you know, terms on food. You don't have this fixed mindset where foods are good and bad on or off diet, you know, on the plan or off the plan. It's more than that. So we have to look at food as not only fuel, it's also an emotional component. It's, it's good for um, a nutrient status component. It's good for health. It's good for fitness. It's good for performance. It serves all, all these things, including pleasure, but if pleasure and, you know, flavor and satisfaction is the only thing that's you're making your food choices about, you are, you're very likely to be micronutrient deficient. Absolutely. Super insightful, man. So final principle is sleep, which I'm kind of surprised to see at the end here. Can you dig into this for us? Absolutely. So, all right. So when I go over this with clientele and they, they, I give them this hierarchy sometimes and often I'll do it in pieces because I don't want them to see everything that we're working on and getting overwhelmed. But sometimes I'll have an advanced person come to me and I send them the whole program. Listen, these are my priorities. These are my high priority principles. I want us to work on this together. But often I get that question. And this is the reason. The reason why sleep is last on the list is it's extremely important to health, but generally it's the one thing I get the most pushback on from clients. So it's most difficult to actually put into your program. And I understand that because, you know, everyone's busy. Everyone, you know, 
The first thing people do when they have lack of time is they sacrifice sleep. And there's even movements for this, no days off, team, no sleep, all this stuff that they promote, even in the fitness industry. It's like you're promoting something that's actually like intentionally deleterious. And I understand it's not done with bad intention, but it is sending out the wrong message. But the thing is that I need to get other things in place. I need to get them to prioritize other principles where it's easier to implement. They get wins. I'm all about, you know, celebrating little victories. We build that momentum and then we tackle the bigger rocks. So sleep is extremely important. However, if it's something that I'm going to address first and they're not going to do it, it's already a failure in their eyes. So if I tell them, listen, you're sleeping five hours a night. I need you to sleep eight hours a night. That's overwhelming. How am I going to find three more hours of my day? So that's where I go to doing other approaches other than, you know, I heard Stu Phillips at a presentation years ago at the ISSN. He said, um, telling someone to eat less, move more is as helpful for losing weight as telling someone that's broke to save more money. I mean, if you're not making more money, you can't save more money. So if you don't know how to implement dietary practices and you just tell someone, all you got to do is eat less and move more. That's not helpful. It's true, but it's not helpful. So I could tell a client, for instance, you need to sleep more. But if they don't have the intangibles, they don't have the desire, they don't have the ability uh, personally to do so, it's like doing nothing for them. So I align all these other things. And then how I actually, what's funny is I approach sleep a little bit differently because I could tell someone to sleep more or I could give them sleep supplements or something, but that doesn't really change the habits behind things. So I, how I start with, with sleep is actually in the morning. You know, so I, I do these bookend routines. So I start with an AM walk. And the reason I do that is it helps you know, we work on a body clock. So I'm trying to help regulate their circadian rhythm. So sleeping, you know, when you get sun exposure in the morning, it helps, you know, it hits, you know, photons in the back of the eye to regulate the uh, SCN, which regulates your, your uh, circadian rhythm. And all I need them to do is get 10 to 20 minutes of exposure. So that could be on their morning walk. If I have clients that don't do any morning fasted cardio or morning cardio in general, I'll have them get outside for 20 minutes. Get out on your porch, do some emails. I just want some sun exposure. It's going to be good for vitamin D photosynthesis. It's also going to be good for setting up your circadian rhythm. And initially when I explain to them, listen, it's going to help you sleep better. They don't understand. Right. And once they integrate it for a week or two, they're like, wow, it's been easier. I haven't even been thinking about it. If I just told them, listen, get into bed 30 minutes earlier. It might have not worked. They might have not even done it. And even if they did, a lot of times they're just laying there. They're not actually getting to sleep better. So that's how I increase sleep latency, which is the ability or the time it takes to get to sleep. And then from there, I start looking at other aspects. So I'll look at their sleep environment or their sleep hygiene. So I want a cool, dark room with little to no electronics, no blue light, because we know that causes cortisol secretions, which increase or decrease melatonin. So that's going to disrupt sleep cycles. I'll also look at having them put on blue light blocking glasses two hours before bed. So if they're, they want to get into bed around 10, that's their target. At least by eight o'clock, I want blue light blocking glasses on. Um, and then I also want to minimize, you know, and I know this is difficult. It's difficult for me as well to, I want to minimize exposure to electronics, to laptops, to TVs, to phones. And what I try to do is it would be great if I get everyone two hours before, so they don't get that disruption in melatonin production because cortisol and melatonin are counter-regulatory hormones. So when we get that cortisol rise from blue light, it lowers our natural melatonin secretion. However, what I, I settle on with a lot of clients is let's start with 30 minutes, just a wind down routine, set up your bed, set up everything going, you know, journal, all those routines that I've already spoken about, those stress mitigation techniques generally takes 20 to 30 minutes. So if you're going to do a little meditation, do 15 minutes of meditation, 15 minutes of journaling, go to bed. You didn't look at your phone the whole time. And it's those little implementable things. And then from there, I'm very big into tracking. Like I said, I like objective sleep data. 
uh, or I like objective data in general, but that's the last, that's literally the last thing I'm worrying about is an aura ring or, um, you know, I wear an aura ring myself. I do a Fitbit and I, I do track that with certain clients, but it's not necessary. What I'm really looking at is, is them just implementing different habits into their day where it's going to create, you know, more positive behaviors are going to modify their behaviors. And then from there we can optimize, but you can't look to just optimize first without changing, you know, the, the components around things. So I think a lot of people get caught like, you know, they mix the forge for the trees and they say, oh, I'm going to start, you know, recording my sleep or I'm going to start, you know, diving into all these like nuances of things because they're sexy and right. taking a morning walk isn't sexy, but it's going to be much more effective and much more easy for you to adhere. I love it, man. Straight up, you just gave a reference manual for coaches. That was also helpful, dude. Do you have time? Do you have time to, to dig into insulin? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. So last thing to wrap this up, insulin sensitivity. I don't know why I can't say that word. Um, <laughs> What is insulin sensitivity? Okay, so simply put, insulin sensitivity pretty much refers to your body's ability to appropriately react to increases in glucose. So think about that as sugar. When we get when we ingest carbohydrates, it gets converted into glucose, it's, it's floating in the blood. And we do that, how we react appropriately to that is by secreting appropriate levels of insulin that will increase and enhance the uptake of glucose and normalize blood sugar. So generally, if you are an insulin sensitive individual, you're taking carbohydrates, it gets converted into glucose, insulin, it gets pumped out of the, the pancreas, and it shuttles those nutrients into tissue. Generally, it's going to be into muscle tissue. Generally, it's going to be into liver tissue so that we can have glycogen storage. So glucose becomes glycogen. Now, this is extremely important for not only your physique development, but for your health as well. It's vital to have you know, good insulin sensitivity for burning fat, building muscle, staying lean and maintaining heart health. But a lot of people are you know, actually lean towards insulin resistance. So there was a, a study back in 2019 from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that showed that 88% of U.S. Americans today are, metabolic, are suffering from a form of metabolic syndrome, which makes them metabolically unhealthy, meaning that they have some sort of insulin resistance leading on towards being insulin resistant in terms of a pathological state. So we know that about 50% of our, our U.S. population is either type 2 or type 1 diabetic or their insulin resistance in terms of a pathological, they have a prognosis, they're pre-diabetic, you know, diabetic or um, type two diabetic. So that's a big predominance of people, which is why I always try to work on this and why I track it because you don't know what you don't measure. You know what I mean? So a lot of people, they could be going, they could be lean and healthy. I've had people that are in contest prep, you know, or they're lean, healthy individuals, quote unquote, but they come to me and they're insulin resistant. You know what I mean? So it's, that's why I really get into this topic. And I think it's extremely important to not only prioritize for health, but also for body composition, because without good insulin sensitivity, you're not utilizing your nutrients properly. Absolutely. So how do we measure this? Okay. So again, like I said, I always like looking at both objective and subjective metrics, because I think we need a combo of both. And also from a client's perspective, they don't, they don't always, you know, I have a lot of guys, I coach a lot of coaches. And so they like the nuances. They want to know the information. Why do you track this? Why do you track that? Um, however, not everyone wants that. So with me, I look at both metrics where I could explain to the layman, Hey, these are the subjective markers. You're experiencing this. This is what this means. But then also for the more advanced clients, you know, those have been in the trenches for a lot of years. I say, dude, I'm going to give you numbers and we're going to look at the analytics. And so it serves both, both of my clientele, both audiences essentially. So you know, like I mentioned before, I measure fasted blood glucose levels, and there's many reasons for that. But one of them is your insulin sensitivity. And like I, I said, you know, if you are, I want people between 70 and 84 milligrams per deciliter. That means you have optimal insulin sensitivity. But if you're one milligram of sugar over 84 milligrams per deciliter, you're already 
going towards diabetic. That doesn't mean you're diabetic whatsoever. It just means you have a higher preponderance or higher likelihood. However, it's been shown, you know, what, what are the readings right now is if you're over 100 milligrams fasted twice on blood work, you're considered pre-diabetic. And then if you're twice over 126 milligrams per deciliter, you're a diabetic. So these are the things we want to look for in blood work. You can do that by using a glucometer. I have many you know, glucometers at CVS or at any you know, Walmart or any you know, chain grocery store. You can get this for 10 or 20 bucks. And this is completely non-invasive. It's a prick of the finger. If I find that a client is, um, I see them running high blood glucose levels, I start checking because there is something called Dawn Phenomenon, which will cause like a transient rise in cortisol in the morning. It'll make your blood glucose look temporarily like you're insulin resistant when you're not. So that's where I'll utilize postprandial, which is generally two to three hours after meals. So they'll eat a meal two to three hours later after finishing meal, we'll check the blood sugar again. Uh, the next thing that we would track is through blood work and it's called HbA1c. So HbA1c is pretty much just a reading of the average blood glucose over three months. So it's a more extrapolated thing. It lets us show the peaks and valleys. And then Essentially, what HbA1c actually is, it's how much glucose has become attached to your hemoglobin in your blood, which indicates a glycation reaction. So it's almost like caramelizing onions. It's like, you know, the combination of the two. And so, you know, I'm looking for clients to be anywhere between 5 to 5.2 on blood work, but anything between 5.7 and 6.4 is considered pre-diabetic and anything over 6.4, you'd be labeled as a diabetic. So those are the things to look out for. I'm aiming for 5 to 5.2. My my recent blood work, I was 4.9, so I'm right in that range. I'm a little bit low on, on, you know, in terms of it, but lower is better in this type of market. It means you're more insulin sensitive. And then the last two I do that are a little bit harder to get, and it's not that it's more difficult to get. You just have to explain to your doctor, listen, you know, I'm very, you know, interested in this. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I have, you know, I use the fact that my father was a diabetic and he died from diabetes, but you know, I'm not saying anyone lie, but you could utilize, Hey, I've had insulin resistance in my family. It's something that worries me. And the last two are fasted insulin, which is a very good indicator. So fasted insulin, the range is extremely large. Like I almost said, the blood glucose for the American value, it's 65 to 99. Now with fasted insulin, it's 2.6 to 24.9. So it's a huge range. Now this, for my clients, I want them between two and five. Anything over six, I start getting worried. And the reason for that is you could have normal blood sugar. So you could, I can have a client that pricks his finger. Every morning he's 85. He looks great. But he could have really high fasted insulin. And what that means is his pancreas is secreting and an overproducing insulin to cover that amount of blood glucose. So eventually your beta cells are going to become burnt out from excreting that much glucose to just cover that much insulin rather to cover glucose. So if you're not taking in a ton of carbs and your body's overproducing insulin, you're causing a hyperinsulinemic state, which is what leads to insulin resistance, which goes downstream to diabetes. So if I see someone with regular fasted blood glucose, but they have high fasted insulin, I say something's off. We have to address this. And that's where having these extra markers are really important. There's another marker that you could use. It's a calorie calculator that you could, or it's a, a calculation you can use online. It's called HOMA, HOMA IR. And it's easy formula to, to type into. It takes, if you have your fasted blood glucose and your fasted insulin, you multiply them by each other. And I believe you divide by 405. And if you're under 1.5, you're in a really good range. On my last blood work, I was 0.47. So I was you know, well within the range of being insulin sensitive. But these are all things you could easily get and do calculations to really see, hey, how insulin sensitive I am and how far away from insulin resistance am I at? The other thing that I'll have certain people do, if I keep seeing that they're having what's called transient increases in blood glucose, meaning that some days they, they peak, sometimes they pop up, sometimes they don't, is an oral glucose tolerance test. 
So an oral glucose tolerance test is uh, it's a challenge test, essentially. So they give you 75 grams of glucose solution, so pretty much sugar, and then they test your blood sugar two hours later. If you're at 140 milligrams per deciliter or over, you're considered pre-diabetic. So that's where you're really trying to see that, that postprandial. That would be the same thing as me utilizing a postprandial blood glucose reading, but it's a little bit more accurate. It's straight blood in the sugar. You should clear that in two minutes because keep in mind it's isolated. So we know that when we add like a mixed meal, we add protein to carbohydrates, it slows down the gastric emptying time and the digestion. So we would see a, a more steady rise because protein being ingested with carbohydrates is going to smooth out the blood sugar excursion curve. So we'd see a much higher value from just straight glucose than we would have protein glucose. Okay. And then, Sorry, go ahead. No. Then from the subjective uh, metrics, I start looking at things both visibly and then also training performance wise. So if someone's gaining excessive amounts of body fat, it's usually an indication that their insulin sensitivity is lowered um, and that your body has stopped partitioning nutrients properly. And instead of going to muscle cell and to liver cell to help with glycogen storage, it's actually going and being partitioned to fat cell which we want to avoid because that just means you're in too high of a calorie excess. And actually the number one component to insulin resistance is actually being in an excess of calories. A lot of people have this misconception. It's carbohydrates. It's not. You could become insulin resistant from high fats. And we have multiple studies that show that. And so that's the first thing I look at. Are you gaining excess body fat? And especially if I, I take someone and I notice that they're getting a little bit more body fat and I put them at a maintenance calorie level and where I keep their calories steady for weeks on end and they're still gaining body fat, that indicates to me, listen, there's something going on. Next thing is lacking pumps in the gym. So if you lose insulin sensitivity, you're losing nutrient partitioning. So instead of the, that glucose being transported into the muscle cell and helping with muscular contractions, with getting more uh, better pumps, you're actually getting partitioned to fat, which you're obviously not going to see a pump in the gym. So that's like a real thing. When I have a guy in the off season, he's utilizing a lot of carbs or even females, and they're not getting a pump and they're not seeing like a visible uh, you know, appearance, you know, if you're flat in a, in a contest prep or in a diet, you're not expecting to see pumps. But if you're in the off season, you should be bursting full. You know, if you're not seeing that, that's an indication you're either overtrained or you're having some insulin resistance. And then the last thing I look at is excessive water retention. So one of the main components of insulin resistance is what's called oxidative stress. And so this contributes to insulin resistance and it also causes an increase in cortisol levels because it's a stressor, um, which increases insulin sensitivity all the more. So that will cause a shift in water retention. So you will notice that with higher amounts of food, you're retaining more water. So you're seeing more water weight. You're seeing like a, it's a softer, flabbier look. So not only do you look like you're getting body fat, but you notice like you're holding more water and you're not able to absorb a lot of the food. And, and another thing is like some people will feel sluggish after meals, which just means that their insulin levels are, are way too high you know, post-meal and they're not, not clearing out that blood glucose. Absolutely. Again, so interesting. Um, I know on the podcast you did it with Brandon or with Brian and Aaron on a similar topic on insulin specifically. Mm -hmm. I love how we brought up the P ratio concept and how well, like there's all the talk lately of, okay, we probably don't have an upper ceiling to like, whereas it was thought before, once we get past a certain body fat percentage, like we're going to partition more nutrients to fat versus muscle mm -hmm. gain. But then like, uh, again, I think for so many people listening that probably, cause I know I've been there where it's like, okay, past a certain point, as I keep gaining body fat, my training just gets worse and worse. Like you said, like Absolutely. pumps are worse. I just feel so much worse in the gym. So it's, it's very interesting to like, because that, when I heard that could like Trexler, someone who I have a huge amount of respect for. hundred percent. Like, His research is phenomenal. It's just, we can't, and he'll say this himself. We can't apply everything we see in the research and apply it to every single per person in the population because each person genetically, this is not only, 
we have to realize that there is lifestyle factors that contribute to insulin resistance, but it's very hereditary. So it is your family's predisposition. It is like, for instance, for myself, I don't allow myself to give above, you know, right now I stay lean at all times just because that's part of my lifestyle. But when I used to push on my weight for competing, I would never get above 15 to 17% because I tracked blood glucose. I saw that it was out of range. So it's indicating, I'm not going to say, let me get to 22% body fat because this research study says that I'll be fine and not gain more fat. I'll gain more muscle. It's going to make me insulin resistant. So my health's going to depreciate and it's going to cause downstream effects. So that's not going to help with muscle building. Absolutely. So interesting, man. So finally, how do we improve insulin sensitivity? Okay. So I approach it um, as everything I do, I start with first priority principles. So the first priority is to pull back on calories. And the reason for that, as I mentioned previously, is that an excess of energy is a leading cause of insulin resistance and lack of insulin sensitivity. So like I said, it's not just carbohydrates. We have high fat feedings that has caused insulin resistance. We have you know, a combination of carbs and fats, like your, your standard American diet, which is why many people are predisposed to that because it's a combination of high processed, uh, highly processed refined sugars and you know, processed fats and refined fats. Um, so the first thing is getting someone into a state of uh, a calorie deficit so that we're lowering the amount of calories that they're in. The goal here is to lose body fat and get leaner. So we have research that has shown that between a 5 to 7% reduction in body weight will cause a massive increase and improvement in insulin sensitivity for most individuals. But I want to note that it's different. And the reason I know this is because my father was diabetic. For type 2 diabetics as well as diabetics, they might require a larger amount of a decrease in, in overall weight to see that increase in insulin sensitivity. So on type two diabetics, it was shown that a 10 to 15% loss of body weight was shown to restore their beta cell function, which is obviously improperly functioning due to their insulin resistance. So usually I'll go through a variety of methods. There's different nutritional approaches that I'll take. So for instance, I'm going to put them in a deficit, but there's many different varieties that I'll take. So we spoke about nutrient timing. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll pull back carbs from all the other meals except pre, inter, and post-workout. And I prioritize that around that period because we know that that's when you're most insulin sensitive. You know, So you're most receptive to absorbing that nutrients, especially glucose. So from there, the rest of the day, I'll look to balance out blood sugar. So that could be with protein fat meals or protein. I, I utilize a lot of protein and fiber meals. Proteins can help balance out blood sugar and help with satiety. And then fiber has also been shown to lower gastric emptying rates or slow down gastric emptying rates and stabilize blood sugar as well. So a lot of micronutrient dense foods, I'm really focusing on food quality because they're in a stress state. And like I said, one of the con leading contributors to insulin resistance is oxidative stress. So one way we combat that is antioxidants and polyphenols. And what you're going to get that from is fruits and vegetables. So I really focus and prioritize in food selection and food quality. Um, so then from there, I go into, you know, looking at what they're going to be doing or what they have been doing in terms of macronutrient setup. So if I have a uh, lifestyle client that comes to me and they've been pushing high carbohydrates, you know, they're, I'm not utilizing nutrient timing with them and they've been pushing high carbohydrates. I'll pull back more on carbs. Now, if someone's been pushing high fat and like keto gaining, I'm going to pull back on fats. It's not really specifically necessary to go either way. So a lot of people will say you got to go keto to, you know, undo insulin resistance or to uh, essentially increase insulin sensitivity. That's not true because if you stay at maintenance calories or above, we've actually shown in studies that at maintenance calories, if you eat uh, a lot of saturated fats, it can induce insulin resistance, even though they're not at an excess of energy. So we have to keep these food sources, macronutrients, all these things have to be taken into consideration. Um, so the other thing that I do is I might utilize um, like fasting days. So I might utilize like a, a 
some type of approach where on their off days, they're either fasting for 16 hours. So like your, your lean gains approach, you know, your intermittent fasting approach, just to give a larger window without food, get the digestive system a little bit of a break, get your pancreas a break from the blood sugar excursions and secreting insulin. And then also it's going to compress that feeding window. So I'm able to create a greater deficit. So on some clients, I'll create almost all the deficit just on those off days. And now what that also does is it increases your metabolic flexibility, which I hit on earlier. So with that, you know, like I said, when you're overweight, you're generally metabolically inflexible and you're insulin resistant. So we want to undo that. And one way to do that is through fasting because fasting will promote you to utilize because you're in a state where you're not uh, consuming food, you're going to be more likely to utilize fat as energy. So I'll often look at that as a way for someone to burn up the extra fuel substrates that they have because they've been in an energy excess for so long. So they have excess body fat. We're going to be able to utilize body fat a little bit more. We're going to be able to compress that eating window. So instead of taking in 3000 calories, maybe I'll be able to compress that to 2000 calories. I create a 2000 calorie deficit throughout the week on their two non-training days. Uh, the other thing that I utilize is, um, you know, I'll switch up meal timing. So we know that in, in research studies on chrononutrition, you're more insulin sensitive in the morning. So I might allocate more of their carbs early in the day and throughout the peri-workout window and then go to protein fat meals at night or just you know protein veggie or just like a slow digesting protein at night just to be able to really optimize that. But it's all client specific and it's based on what their lifestyle is like. It's based on what their preference is like. It's based on what they can adhere to because these are people that they're dealing with something that we want to eliminate quickly. So generally what I see is I utilize these primer phases or I'll utilize these uh, deficit phases or I'll even do a mini cut. And generally I'm looking at between four and six weeks is generally I can get their blood sugar back in the range. I reanalyze blood work and they're good to go. And the longest, honestly, I've had someone go through this is someone that was labeled as pre-diabetic. They were at 117 milligrams per deciliter. And that's right. You know, 126 would be diabetic. Um, and it took, it took him eight weeks. But besides that, we've been able to, to utilize, you know, or we've been able to utilize these approaches for their benefit. And I kind of go, like I said, in that top-down approach. So I might start with the peri-workout nutrition changes and get them into a deficit. And then from there, maybe I'll add in some fasting days or intermittent fasting days rather. And we'll work different things based on their biofeedback and how they're responding. And then the last thing I do is I, I tackle it from a training perspective and activity because that's going to help with nutrient partitioning. So we know that, you know, blood glucose is essentially a sink and the amount of lean muscle tissue you have is like determines how large that sink is. So muscle is, is essentially what determines how much glucose you can absorb and utilize. So I use exercises like the drain for that sink. So, you know, if someone's insulin resistance, I'm looking to get them to weight train. So for those that, you know, some of my, my um, lifestyle clients that don't really train, I'm getting to them to increase training frequency. That's going to activate GLUT4 translocation, which is non-insulin mediated. So it's going to allow us to absorb glucose into the muscle cells without the usage of insulin, which they're already insensitive to. So if you think about it, someone's insulin resistant, they're not utilizing insulin properly to shuttle those nutrients, but they don't need insulin if they've just trained. So you get that absorb, that increase in absorption. And then from there, besides the training aspect, I also utilize cardio. You know, I'll do the post-meal walks, like I had said, the aerobic work, which is going to increase insulin sensitivity. And it's been shown to do so for 48 hours. So it's something we have to do constantly. Whereas muscle, you build muscle, you'll be more insulin sensitive all the time. So this is where utilizing both, you know, weight training along with post-meal walks and other aerobic work in combination with a better diet is going to help with all those factors. And the last thing would be just sleep quality and stress management, because both of those things are huge with blood sugar. So if you don't manage your sleep, you're going to see there's high correlations with increasing blood glucose levels. 
And also with stress, like I said, there's that cortisol response, which liberates blood sugar from, you know, your stored your liver. So you're going to see that high facet blood glucose. So it's an all encompassing approach. Like I kind of take with everything. It's nutrition, it's training, it's lifestyle, it's stress management, it's sleep quality. And, and generally that's why I can do this in four weeks, four to six weeks and see such improvements. And four to six weeks is a surprisingly short time frame for everything we talked about. Like I think most people listening would think, well, okay, this is going to be like a three to six month process at minimum, but it's, it is surprising that it can be like, we can see that market of improvements in such a short time frame. Yeah, absolutely. But if you even think about it, so a lot of these things are going to change not overnight, but it's going to be quickly because say you've been, uh, you've been living like more of a sedentary lifestyle. You've been in an off you've been pushing 600 grams of carbs a day, and you've been in this insulin resistant state, just taking down those carbohydrates and taking down that food and that excess calories. If you're at 5,000 calories, we drop you to 3,000. It's going to be more of an aggressive approach. You know what I mean? It's going to be an aggressive deficit, but it's going to help with, you're going to have less floating nutrients in the blood. So you're going to partition those better anyway. Then we add in different training modalities. So I might do what I, I like to do is metabolic stress phase because it's going to help with increasing that insulin sensitivity. So, you know, I know Cass or even one of my mentors that's been on this show, Alan Kress, he'll do two week, you know, insulin sensitivity phases through metabolic conditioning or metabolic stress work. So we have, it's not taking just one type of approach. If you only tackle it from diet, it might take a couple months. If you only tackle it from training, it might take it a couple months. But when you address everything within, that's where you see everything compound. And it's like one plus one doesn't equal two. It's like one plus one equals three. And it's that compounding effect of all these things, just like with habits or with anything in life. If you're able to combine a bunch of different approaches that fit well together, that's the thing. They have to fit and be periodized together. And they're all towards a specific goal. That's where we can really optimize the system. I love it. Dude, this has been such a valuable episode. Again, like I feel like this is an entire reference manual for any of the coaches that listen. I can't say thank you enough for coming on, man. Uh, I've been yeah. so much. I've taken up a lot of your time today. So I'm going to go ahead and let you go here. But before I do, will you let everyone know where they can find you, anything you have going on, anything you'd like to plug at all? Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Well, first and foremost, Jeremiah, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to doing it again. Uh, as far as contacting me, guys, I'm available at Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. I also have a website, BrandonDeCruzFit.com. And then for any email inquiries, I answer everyone that reaches out to me. I'm really good with getting back to my DMs and stuff. Uh, it is... Um, Fitness at gmail.com. Dope. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, thank you, man, for being here. Hell yeah, man.